Hello and welcome to the Low Tech Podcast. I'm Scott Johnson from the Low Technology Institute, your host for podcast number 24 on May 19th, 2017, coming to you at the Low Tech Recording Room in Cooksville, Wisconsin. Thanks for joining us. Today we'll wrap up our conversation with Shanti Morel-Hart discussing how people react to food shortage. Our regular weekly news roundup is back and we've got institute updates. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at low underscore techno. Like us on Facebook, find us on Instagram, and check out our website, lowtechinstitute.org. There you can find both of our podcasts and our blog. Now we'll return to the second half of the interview I recorded last week with Dr. Shanti Morel-Hart discussing apocalyptic foodways. So if we were to, you know, take some of these uh, lessons we've learned from, from the past and, you know, do something that... As an academic, I understand uh, we don't like to argue beyond our data or look beyond our data. So, you know, let's firmly put this in the realm of speculation based on some, you know, informed speculation, but in speculation nonetheless, and clearly nothing that we're going to be putting together a paper and publishing in any professional context, but just kind of as a thought experiment, if we use these sorts of uh, ethnographic analogies as, as that, um, and you were to think about, you know, let's say our food system breaks down for whatever reason, say a fungus wipes out the corn across North America next year. Do you see tendencies in um, North American society to tend towards the cohesive, tend towards the uh, uh, divisive and fighting over scraps? Or like what, you know, do you have a best case and worst case scenario uh, for us? I don't know. I think the one of the worst case scenarios I recall reading about as a kid and it- deeply traumatized me. There was a science fiction author, I think Susie McKee Charnas is her name, where she describes like people basically being kept as cattle and sort of being used as their, um, you know, for meat and milk, basically, with oh, very wow. limited sort of plant resources, this, you know, this completely post-apocalyptic landscape. Um, and it's almost impossible to imagine a scenario in which the major food resource becomes only human beings. I mean, just in terms of the insect world, we've got a lot of options left to us. Mm. Um, so that I would describe that as a as an extreme but very likely impossible scenario. And I think it, it becomes a worst case scenario uh, only in the sense that it's about the worst thing that we can imagine, like keeping sure. other human beings for food. But very unlikely. Um, but very, again, very, very, very unlikely. It was something that always bothered me about the narrative in the road is that everything is virtually eliminated. It's, and this is the um, uh, Cormac McCarthy book, like everyone, everything, or everything is virtually eliminated, all the plants, insects and everything. And I find that hard to believe given the history of the cockroach. I'm like, there's always <laughs> some insect out there you can eat. But um, so yeah, I would describe that as the absolute worst case scenario, highly, highly unlikely. Best case scenario would be people draw together, they sort out ways of of negotiating this, you know, they find new plants that are edible. They find new ways of promoting these plants or even cultivating these plants. Um, uh, you know, find new insects that they can consume. Mm. Um, new ways of basically coping with a severe food shortage um, that relies less on a base of you know highly industrialized uh, grain systems. And I think. In the best case scenario, we'd see a lot of societal cohesion, people, again, working together to sort out their problems instead of fighting each other for scraps of food, Mm. um, which historically uh, ends up turning out much less well for people than than working together to solve problems. 
I wonder if there might be some division of uh, reaction in, say, cities versus rural areas, because just, you know, due to the fact that rural areas, by definition, have less dense people on the landscape, um, there'd be, you know, more possibility for growing and scavenging and foraging, whereas in the city, such a density of people, you're quickly going to exhaust whatever foraging or other alternative uh, food sources you have. No, and I think that's true. I think you'd see much more mobility in, in the situation of a of a city. You'd see a lot of people exiting the city because, yeah, you'd, you'd run a f- out of food fairly quickly. And for anyone who's had to prepare for a hurricane, you see how just, mm-hmm. just how quickly all that food disappears off the shelves. And if there's no chance of resupply or supplies are rapidly dwindling, um, yeah, it becomes fairly dire fairly quickly. So, you know, I, I just think of hurricane preparation friends of mine have done where it's like oh you know we went to the supermarket we're going to stock up and there was virtually nothing left there were like six cans of beans so we decided just to you know drive north and stay with our families mm-hmm. so you get and this is something we see archaeologically as well people really move around in the landscape it's very rare that people decide to just kind of lay down and die which strangely enough seems the sort of premise for a lot of these collapse theories uh, mm-hmm. that we get in archaeology it's a whole sure. other topic but yeah i think um people they will cope in a number of different ways and it's very rare that people just sort of hunker down and make their way through the shoe leather and then give up yeah so <laughs> you, you generally see a lot of mobility and i think you're right as you exit as you exit a city um you'd end up the countryside is is you know going to see a rapid influx of people as people move in with relatives or just try and find somewhere in the landscape where they can you know, get at some food in some way. But again, I think this is where social connections would become so important. Um, similarly to what you were describing for the Inca, you know, do you have do you have folks downhill um, that you can move in with for a little while? Do mm-hmm. you have folks downhill that could supply you with food if if things become scarce a little further up the hill? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that would be a similar sort of city-country relationship. I remember before, uh, so I went to grad school at Tulane in New Orleans, and I remember before Gustav, we had a clean out your freezer uh, barbecue. And so all of our friends came over with all their frozen meat that we had all thought out because if you lose power in New Orleans, your refrigerator becomes a biohazard. Yeah, we had a huge grill party and just ate all of our meat out of the freezer so that when we evacuated, uh, we weren't leaving potential uh, science experiments behind. And... (laughs) I, I like that you were talking about in your in your article, you talk about three things that I think are maybe a little somewhat known, I guess. But nowadays with many people, you know, it's well documented that more people eat out more and for more and more meals um, and don't prepare as much at home. And so you talk about stretching famine foods and uh, substitutions. And I think, you know, if you do cook at home, you're probably familiar with stretching where you're going to make a cake and you're, you know, half a cup short of flour, you find something else, or um, substituting, which, you know, oh, I don't have butter, but I'll use olive oil or something like that, um, and famine foods. But could you talk a little bit about the linguistic consistency um, portion that comes out during food scarcity with, with these things? Right. And I think um, what I was getting at there, well, that's that's a product of maybe too many linguistic anthropology classes I got really excited about, <laughs> how we could use linguistic anthropology, conversational discourse analysis to sort of model things in archaeology for better or for worse. Um, but the one of the core ideas there has to do with these sort of paradigms of food that you can have over time, and then uh, these syntams of food that um, you can kind of um, 
things that pair with other things. So if the, the paradigm is a sort of category of food, and that might be a grain, that might be a carbohydrate versus a protein versus a vegetable. Um, so if you've got these different sorts of paradigms of food, on the one hand, on the other hand, there are all these associations with these syntams, as they're called, where you know this thing goes with that thing. Um, so on the one hand, you can think of a recipe you know, in a number of different ways. It's like if you're baking a cake, you've got the paradigm of cake. You've got this category that's cake. You're baking a cake. And so there are a number of things, a number of um, uh, ingredients that will go into that. And the things that match together, these syntams, these associated sorts of ingredients, mm -hmm. like that is what um, sort of builds the recipe. So on the one hand, you've got the sort of category of the thing, the idea of the thing. On the other hand, you've got the things you need to pull together to turn into the thing. Mm. So over time, we can see shifts in both of these things. So it might be that during wartime, and um, this is where I've drawn on the, the really interesting work of Andrea Adolph, um, who was addressing mostly wartime literature, but she was describing how um, in uh, Great Britain during World War II, you had people coming up with these different sorts of substitutions. They'd come up with these different sorts of ways of making do. And so they'd you know, substitute one ingredient for another in a dish, um, still trying to preserve the sort of paradigm, the sort of category of a particular food, mm -hmm. but using different ingredients. So part of the question then becomes, you know, how far can you stretch that before it no longer fits the paradigm? Mm. Um, or, you know, how, how can you substitute different things in different ingredients um, to still retain um, these sort of paradigms of food, whether it's like, you know, a series of comfort foods or a particular dish you want to cook, a traditional dish. I was going to say also possibly even avoidance, like uh, calling human flesh long pig or something that's not exactly. human flesh. Exactly, exactly. So what, you know, what can you get away with substituting to still, you know, fit it within a particular paradigm? And that, there are different scales. So on the one hand, it could be cake. Uh, on a, you know, higher scale, it could be desserts. On a bigger scale, it could be, you know, comfort foods. At even higher scale, it's just food in general. What do you think of as edible? The kinds of ingredients, the kinds of processing techniques, and then really critically, the ways that we think about these sorts of recipes and ingredients all get wrapped up into, you know, how we consume something or whether we even consider that it's edible or not. So for some people, you know, there are tabooed foods. They would never eat it, even under extraordinary and serious circumstances. So we could say, oh, yeah, human flesh. We could, you know, for others of us, it's like, no, I would never eat an insect. I would rather die than eat an insect. And then for other people, it might be for spiritual reasons, religious reasons, mm -hmm. like even under duress, I wouldn't consume shellfish. I would not consume pork. So mm -hmm. there become, you know, these series of sort of food avoid avoidances people engage in for a number of reasons that uh, would make it harder for these sort of substitutions to take place on the one hand, but would sort of push people toward innovation on the other hand. Mm -hmm. It reminds me, my uh, mother-in-law is a, uh, or used to be a kosher caterer, and so, you know, there are laws about mixing meat and dairy, and so when there was a dairy meal, uh, sometimes she would have, um, like, mock chalk liver or something like that that was making not quite meat because you couldn't have meat with the dairy, and then when we were cooking meat, there would be uh, dairy substitutions that would fit in, but um, when you mention, you know, not eating pork or shellfish, luckily in at least... I don't know about other religions that avoid uh, pork or other foods, but I know in Judaism, if you are about, if you, if it's a choice between dying and eating pork, you're allowed to eat pork. So uh, maintaining life, luckily, is a top level priority, whereas not eating pork is a second level priority. So, um, so I imagine for a lot of people, by the time they get uh, so hungry, 
uh, some of these things maybe would fall by the wayside. But then there are certainly people who are, uh, I guess you'd call them very fervent believers in, in, their, in their faith practice, and they may, they may not. My favorite spec- speculative question, and I ask this one a lot of a lot of different people, if, uh, if we're talking about food, scarcity, potentially famine, and you know, if you are looking forward, if you're the benevolent dictator of the world, um, is there some sort of strategy you would see to prepare societies or perhaps somehow uh, steer them towards a, I guess, the best case scenario outcome for food shortage? Is there, is there anything you've seen ethnographically that seemed to be really adaptive? This is, this is going to seem like a non-answer. I think the best way to be adaptive is to be adaptive. So okay. To, to sort of build in, um, uh, build in resilience um, into your sort of your sort of social structure. Mm. So that means you know having kids have a knowledge of what's sort of edible in the countryside, what they can forage for, what they can consume. Mm. Uh, it's the preservation of different sort of heirloom varietals. So if you know you want to continue with cultivation, if if you've got an issue with some sort of fungus or some sort of insect pest really wiping out large swaths of a particular kind of crop, ideally you've got another sort of crop in the wings that, mm. that can take over. Hanging on to those heirloom seeds uh, would be a, another thing I would build into as a public policy, education um, in terms of local resources, mm-hmm. um, in terms of just farming techniques and getting kids to understand that there are actually there are a couple of really great programs going um, in Berkeley in California right now where you've got um, uh, at a couple of the, uh, the elementary and middle schools these gardens that kids grow and then they learn how to grow these different things and they cook them in the kitchens and so it's this whole process from beginning to end that's, that's really um, pretty helpful so I think that's a good sort of educational initiative that they could be built in as an adult just getting to know your your local wild foods there's a great book called Stocking the Wild Asparagus um, hmm. that describes local foods primarily for the for the northeast but a um, northeastern u.s but a little bit beyond that as well so you know what are the the local kind of wild food resources um i think that's just a a good sort of general thing to arm yourself with obviously different kinds of sustainable um food practices if if we're growing our more of our own food in general if we've got more of those you know so-called victory gardens going you can grow quite a bit of food in a pretty small area and the less reliant we are on getting everything from all over the world um the much you know the, the much more resilient we'll be in, mm. in the case of some sort of hardship in the in the supply chain yeah um, we're really a historical then, anomaly know, just... uh in terms of having uh house gardens because Tenochtitlan or these other dense uh densely populated ancient cities for the most part, not all of them, but many of them still had some sort of, you know, home garden to grow the expensive, difficult to transport, hard to buy products. Absolutely true. Or just a favorite sort of shrub or plant or tree that contributed to their their, mm-hmm. you know, daily cuisine in some way or another. But yeah, I think uh, these are all sorts of strategies that could be built in. So on the one hand, there's you know what what should the state do? What should your community do um, in terms of developing different strategies for resilience and then you know what should you as an individual do I think that you know coming at it from from sort of both ends Mm -hmm. in terms of you know again being aware of what's in the landscape 
trying to actively maintain uh, different sorts of food resources mm-hmm. um, in the case of, of some sort of shortage or crisis. But then all along, I mean, obviously there's the the ways that we can try and make our, our agricultural supply more sustainable, mm-hmm. ways where we can, you know, sort of wean ourselves off of fossil fuels in different ways and develop more strategies that are reliant on wind power and solar power, mm-hmm. less reliant on, you know, these sort of agrochemicals that are petroleum-based and, mm-hmm. you know, all sorts of, of different measures we should and could be taking right now that some people are taking, but more of us should. I think one of the most shocking and kind of scary facts I've learned while doing research on this topic is that for the first time in, I don't know, uh, since there have been state-level societies, the United States has no strategic grain reserve. Uh, in the 1980s under Reagan, they started selling it off, and they finally sold off all of the stored excess grain they have in the U.S. that was supposedly for if there was a crop failure to feed people. They sold it all off under the idea that, well, grain sitting in a silo doesn't collect interest, so what we'll do is we'll sell that grain. We'll put it into a fund and invest it, and that will grow larger. So at a time of famine, we can then buy grain and feed ourselves with it, which seems to be... No, uh, no, that's... But from an accountant's point of view, it's a great idea. From a logical, Mm -hmm. like, you know, anyone who knows anything about famine point of view, that's a terrible idea. (laughs) No, it's, you know, ultimately it works out because when you you run out of food on a global scale, you can eat the money, right? (laughs) Yeah, especially especially now when it's all digital. Yeah, that's true. That's true. You can eat bitcoins. That'll work out for you. Mm. Yeah, I don't know how to test those between my teeth like a nickel. So... (laughs) Hell in a handbasket is what you're telling me, right? It's interesting, I think, as a you know fellow archaeologist, it's interesting to look back at how societies who have felt very secure in their food system uh, are quickly brought back to earth by all kinds of uh, all kinds of scenarios. So it's uh, I think it's an important thing to think and talk about. Right, right. And what sorts of food stores people had at, at you know at the state level, if we're talking about the Inca, mm-hmm. or at you know the individual level, if we're talking about kind of individual food storage, and we see that in some Mississippian societies, we've got good archaeological evidence mm-hmm. of that, and mm-hmm. you know obviously ancient Maya uh, societies, we've got plenty of evidence of, of food storage, but then. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we presume it for most societies that, yeah, there was this idea that you wouldn't always have this around. So for people hunting and gathering in the landscape, you get these caches of, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. smoked meats or smoked mm-hmm, fishes of mm-hmm, different mm-hmm. kinds. You've got these caches of acorns or caches of roots that people stash for later. I mean, you know, people were, were familiar with food precarity, whether or not they were experiencing it. Um, even for a couple of generations, and we're pretty smart about managing their food supplies. That said, yeah, it's, there's a, a finite amount of food scarcity you can accommodate if you've got food storage for just a year or two, sure. never mind a decade. Sure, and I feel like many of us in many parts of North America have kind of put this out of our minds because we are my lifetime, my parents' lifetime, and, you know, I have to go back to my grandparents who have any memory of actual widespread food scarcity. Um, and I think that probably no. puts it the back of our minds rather than the front like it's been for basically most of history. It's true. It's true. And, you know, I, I feel fortunate in my training that I have some, some sense of these kind of foods in the broader landscape, at least plant foods that can be consumed, which is helpful, but mostly, at least currently from the perspective of, oh, yeah, there's this interesting fruit I can bring back to camp if I'm working in an archaeological site or, mm-hmm. you know, there's this interesting herb that you can use to flavor your beans or something. Sure. Um, but in terms of, yeah, trying to 
accommodate multiple people with an extended food supply just drawing from sort of gathered resources that's yeah so i've got some knowledge and yet even i would be really would be really struggling in the scenario of a food shortage so let's hope that policymakers plan a little more proactively rather than reactively but you know track record on that is a little yes <laughs> it could look a little better let's put it that way yeah well, uh, I feel like we could talk about this probably for another couple hours, but uh, I should probably let you go and get back to your, your work. I know I have a final to give later this afternoon, and I'm sure you're <laughs> wrapping up your oh, semester, good too. Luck. Good yeah. luck with that. And well, good luck, good luck to students. the students, yeah. <laughs> My part's over, other than the grading. That's easy. So, Anyway, uh, yeah, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk to me about this today. I really, really appreciate it. Well, thanks again for having me um, on your on your podcast, Scott. I really appreciate it, and it's yeah, it's a very interesting series. I'm going to be looking up some more podcasts later. Oh, thanks, thanks so much. Yeah, the uh, potato famine one might be a good uh, potato famine and meat are uh, two that I've done that have talked a lot about the food system. So those those might you know for you or anyone who's listening who's uh, more interested in uh, food food topics those are some good ones to hit if i can plug if i can plug my own blog on my blog (laughs) (laughs) all right well thanks to the right place yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah food's a food's a big one because uh if you don't have food you know shelter and and clothing and other things are uh quickly become superfluous thanks again to dr morel hart for taking the time to talk with me and providing us with a little bit of a food for thought about how people might react to food shortage in the industrialized world. Now let's take a look at this week in low-tech news. The Milkwood Permaculture blog has a trio of co-op organizations profiled in a post worth taking a look at if you're interested in organizing some sort of cooperative organization. The range spans from large retail operations to small town organizations, so check that out. Deep Green Permaculture had a simple solution for chemical-free weeding. Pour boiling water on the weeds. This reminds me of non-Roundup, a weed control solution using vinegar and salt that I'll outline next week in the DIY project. Treehugger had two stories I wanted to highlight. First, one on not wasting blemished fruit. Tons of fruit are thrown away just because they have superficial blemishes. This is too bad because there's really nothing wrong with the fruit. Even if you don't want to eat it directly, you can use it in pies, jams, or other fruit-based dishes. The second article notes that 85% of Germany's energy in April came from renewables. I hold up Germany as an example for those naysayers who complain that green energy causes economic struggles and isn't possible in non-sunny places. Germany is an economic powerhouse and is not known for its sunshine. So if they can have 85% of their energy in April coming from renewables, what's stopping us? Those are some of the stories we are following in Low Tech News. To see links to the stories we discussed, send us a news tip and more, visit the Low Tech website, lowtechinstitute.org, or by following the link in our podcast profile. And now for a brief recap of the research we have going on around the Institute. We're having to halt most everything we're doing to replace the roof. The buildings on the grounds have cedar wood shingle roofs. The Institute has been commissioned to make the new shingles, so we're sourcing local oak to split into shingles. We'll outline this whole process in the blog in the coming weeks, but we chose oak because it is a locally available resource. It's not shipped from the Pacific Northwest. It's long-lasting, and it's also more historically accurate for this area, as cedar would have been really hard to find. 
We continue to work on the Institute grounds. Last weekend, we held two basic carpentry workshops where people got a short primer on tools and fasteners, and we spent a little time in the garden putting together raised beds. Thanks to everybody who participated. In garden news, the potatoes are coming up nicely, as are the peas and radishes. We have to get the fence up soon, or we're going to start to lose these to rabbits. That's all we have this week for the Low Tech Podcast, which is put out by the Low Technology Institute. At the moment, the show is hosted, edited, and distributed by me, Scott Johnson. This episode was recorded at the Low Technology Recording Room. Our intro music was Ray, off the album Experiments, by Lovira. That song is under the Creative Commons Sharelike License, and this podcast is under the Creative Commons Attribution and Sharelike License, meaning you're free to use and share it as long as you give us credit. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn Radio. And if you enjoy this free podcast, please help repay us by sharing it with a friend. You can find out more information about the Low Technology Institute at lowtechinstitute, all one word, dot org. You can follow us on Twitter at low underscore techno and also reach me directly at lowtechinstitute at gmail.com. I'd be happy to have your feedback. Thanks and take care.